This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. And I am delighted to say that for the next two weeks, I'll be sharing the presenter's microphone with researcher and human rights advocate, Dr. Brianne Fallon. Hey, Brianne. Hello, James. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Now, you're the host of this upcoming documentary, Trafficked to Australia. And also, you're an ambassador for the Biomensch campaign. Day to day, you're a coordinator of research and an educator at the Sydney Jewish Museum, yes? That is correct. And and what are we going to talk about today? Well, today we've got the first in a two-part series on human rights. We're going to be talking human rights, legal rights, rights that we think we have and rights that we actually don't have at all. Indeed. Uh, the last time you were on the show, we looked at rights and responsibilities during war. Um, today, we'll look at the right and responsibility to vote, timely, of course, ahead of the May 21st election. Because even in Australia, the right to vote is not universal? No, it's not. So today we're going to be talking about access to the right to vote and inequalities that are actually built into our voting system. Because even here in Australia, the right to vote is not truly equal for every citizen. But the right to vote is a human right, isn't it, under the Universal Declaration on Human Rights? Yes, that is correct. But I know many of our listeners will be yelling at us saying, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is not a legally binding document. It's more a set of guidelines than actual rules. However, it is also set out in some other documents that Australia is actually bound to. So one of those is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So it's there in Article 25 and also the International Covenant on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. It's there in Article 5C. So we are beholden to those documents in terms of providing equal right to vote. But of course, the right to vote isn't just about slipping a piece of paper into a ballot box. It's also about what that means for you as a citizen, how that makes you feel as though you belong to society. So it's one of the foundational human rights that ensures a fair, free and equal democracy. Well, our guest knows about this on God Forbid, Mark Chu, Associate Professor of Politics in the National School of Arts at the Australian Catholic University. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me. Now, when I was young last week, it was almost <laughs> uh, assumed that the idea of democracy was the best system of government available, or to quote Churchill, the least bad. And indeed, since then, the number of democracies in the world has increased. I'm talking about over the last 50 years. But this masks some contradictory and disappointing trends for Democrats, doesn't it? Yeah, so I think, you know, on the one hand, we've seen the number of electoral democracies grow really steadily since the Second World War. And this has been a really positive development. But at the same time, over the last um, few decades, we've seen an erosion of um, certain democratic rights within these so-called democracies themselves. In the last decade, uh, five to six years in particular, we've seen some of the, the, the best established democracies, our oldest and best democracies. Um, undergone a number of developments which are quite worrying. And here I'm talking about the rise of populist leaders in a number of Western democracies, but also studies showing a lot of uh, citizens in these democracies being quite blasé about uh, the state of their democracy and often indicating that they would be okay if their country went another way politically. So if their country stopped being democratic, for, for instance. Uh, Interesting. But when you say the election of populist leadership is an example of uh, democracy eroding, isn't it the opposite? If the leader is popular and gets elected democratically, doesn't that mean democracy is working, even if some aren't happy with the outcome? Yeah, I guess on the one hand, that is an interpretation. And certainly, say, the election of Donald Trump back in 2016 in the United States, um, a whole range of political views and these citizens felt that their views weren't well represented previously, uh, get a voice in Washington. And I guess from that perspective, it's positive. But 
as we've seen, Trump was not always a force that had had democratic rights and responsibilities at the core. So we saw a lot of erosion of democratic practices during the rise of these leaders. And there's often an authoritarian edge to um, their politics. So even though they come to prominence, they come to power via popular vote, they then have rather authoritarian views um, and practices which slowly, slowly undermine democracy from within. So, Mark, if you're talking about this erosion of democratic values, what does it even mean to have the right to vote anymore? Is it actually something of value? Yeah, I think so. You know, the right to vote is an incredibly important uh, democratic right. Um, In places like America where voting isn't compulsory, I think the need to have more people represented, uh, their views represented is particularly important because we get a better and more accurate take on where that society sits. In Australia, as you said, um, you know, we have a fairly equitable system, a fairly good uh, system of voting, but we could be including more voices as well. And I think when societies are going through uh, strain as they are now, hearing from the least privileged members of our society becomes ever more important. Australia has compulsory voting. You get fined if you don't vote. And we have this huge voter turnout, over 90%, over 90% of eligible voters are registered to vote. Um, Unlike America, our voting system is independent of the major parties. Our elections run and counted by the Australian Electoral Commission. Surely this uh, minimises or even removes the inequalities in the system, no? Well, I think our voting system in Australia is pretty equitable. We certainly can be proud of our system of compulsory voting. Uh, As you say, uh, more than 90% of the voting population uh, tend to turn out regularly at elections and make their voices heard. But at the same time, there are some segments of the Australian population who probably tend to have a less prominent say or somewhat excluded from the electoral process. So just for instance, homeless people or individuals living in uh, crisis or transition accommodation often um, find it hard to enrol to vote. And the Australian Electoral Commission has made it easier for people in this category to to enrol and and vote. But we need to do more to, to hear from them. I guess the other category is prisoners, so citizens who are serving a term. So for prisoners serving uh, terms longer than three years uh, in Tasmania and five years in Victoria, they aren't eligible to vote. We'll be looking at the rights of prisoners in terms of voting a little bit later in the show. I just want to draw attention to another group which aligns with the issue of enrolling based on address, which is the Indigenous population. So in June 2021, for example, the overall enrolment rate was at about 96.2%, but the Indigenous enrolment rate was only 79.3%, even lower in the Northern Territory at just under 70%. So in terms of voices not being represented, that's another one we should really be drawing attention to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when a third of the constituency is disenfranchised, that can have electoral outcomes. Yeah, I think when we don't hear from a a sizeable proportion of a population, we are probably going to only hear from certain views and we have to ask who those uh, people are um, and what their interests are and, and importantly, who we aren't hearing from. So when a democracy doesn't hear from a wide enough cross-section of all demographics, we often start playing up uh, particular interest groups and um, their policy preferences and their agendas um, get preferenced over uh, those who who are disenfranchised, as you say. It's interesting what you're saying there about disenfranchisement because the Northern Land Council actually took a complaint to the Australian Human Rights Commission that the AEC, the Australian Electoral Commission, actually actively discriminates against Indigenous voters with the way the system is currently structured. So I'm wondering, is this a conversation that you think Australia is open to having? Are we happy to talk about these communities that are disenfranchised? 
I would certainly hope so. I think in democracies every now and then we have these debates on how we can be more inclusive, more representative. Uh, these are debates that democracies have as they mature, as they become more self-reflexive. We need to start looking at ways to um, include them in the political discussion, giving them avenues to participate both as voters and as uh, representatives in our parliaments themselves. So I absolutely think we need to be having discussions about how to improve uh, our electoral system with the caveat, as I said, that I think overall uh, our voting system is, is very good and Australia can be proud of itself, but that's not to say that we are perfect. On RN, it is God forbid. I am James Carlton. Very pleased to say Brianne Fallon is my co-presenter today. We're with our guest, Mark Chu. Much more ahead. The right of all people to vote in elections without any discrimination is one of the most fundamental of all human rights and civil liberties. But when and why would that be taken away, if at all? Well, James, there are a few reasons why someone might be disqualified from voting in Australia. If you are of unsound mind or have been convicted of treason or treachery without being pardoned, or if you're serving a prison sentence of more than three years, If you fall into one of those three categories, voting is not an option. You are disqualified from voting. And one person who understands this and what it means to have the right to vote taken away is Robin Westgate. In 1999, Robin was imprisoned for killing her violent and abusive husband. In fact, she was one of the last women in Western Australia sentenced to life imprisonment prior to the changes to the definition of self-defence in the law. Robin actually served... Over 17 years, she was released in 2016. She has since pursued an academic career researching domestic and family violence, and she advocates for the rights of female prisoners. It might interest you to know that one of the first things that she did once she was released from prison was actually to get her name back on the electoral roll. Robin Westgate is now a domestic violence consultant at Curtin University, and here she is speaking with God Forbid producer Sam Carmody. I was fortunate in a way because when I went into prison I was on remand for 22 months and as a remand prisoner I was allowed to vote and I actually insisted on it because I think there was a referendum. After I was sentenced I lost that right to vote and was told basically that anyone serving a sentence over 12 months could no longer vote. What was that experience like to have that right removed? For me at the time it didn't seem particularly important because there was so much going on right away but later it made me feel completely separate and removed and no longer worth being part of society and community and that I had no value, no voice. Many people in prison they never expect to be heard and they also don't really know how to be heard. They have no faith that anything they say is going to have any value. They have no belief that society wants to hear from them. They know from their own experiences, and yes, from their own behaviours, that they know from their own experiences that they're looked down upon, they're considered less than, they're considered bad, so not wanted. Given that, a lot of people don't want to be involved in the normal rules and regulations and trappings of society, but desperately they do at the same time. And a lot of the problems associated with um, offending and and drug use and and addictions is around that sense of disenfranchisement and not belonging. That is a really profound point to me, that it's one thing to have access to rights and another thing entirely to feel that you can claim those rights. What do you think could potentially be the antidote to that feeling? There's no simple antidote to anything like that. I believe in a form of criminology um, called restorative justice where people are taught to give back to their own communities rather than being in prison for quite small things. They're made to do real work in their own community, not tick box sort of stuff, but real supervised work that benefits their community, so therefore their people, their family, and it creates a sense of belonging. Because if people belong to something, usually they'll take pride in it 
And if they take pride in it, they'll become protective of it. And if they become protective of it, they're more likely not to offend. The right to vote is the right to be part of community. It's to be a citizen. So when the right to vote is taken from you, you're being told you are not a citizen anymore. You have no worth. You have no value. Your opinion, your view, your beliefs have no value. And that was one of the things I found hardest. Um, It was actually one of the first things I did when I got out of prison was to re-register and get put back on the electoral roll because it was a connection. It meant I still existed, I belonged, I was real, I was alive. Can you speak a little bit about your experiences of actually voting and going to a ballot, maybe the first time that you did that after coming out of prison? It was... I felt like I was being watched. I know I wasn't, but it was just good old paranoia. And I felt like it was important that I did this. It was important that I fulfilled this role that I knew had been important to me. That was Robin Westgate. For 17 years, she was a prisoner at Bandyup Women's Prison in Western Australia. Now she's a prisoner advocate and domestic violence consultant and doctoral candidate at Curtin University. She was speaking there to God Forbid producer Sam Carmody. Yeah, thanks, Brianne. And to our guest, Mark Chu in, in Melbourne, we heard Robin describing her experience of having her name struck off the electoral roll, you know, quite evocative. The, it gave her a feeling of having no value, no voice. What's your reaction to that story? Yeah, no, it's quite a powerful um, story and I think a good reminder of um, the sense of inclusion that comes with the right and responsibility of voting. So Robin spoke there about uh, her view of restorative justice, doing things to to make amends. And I think that aligns with a view of voting, um, engaging with politics uh, more formally as a responsibility, one of the key democratic responsibilities that we have. So it's not just a right, it's not just a privilege, but it's a responsibility that uh, as citizens we should be taking seriously. And I think going deeper into that is the sense of belonging that we do feel um, as part of a political community. And these are things that uh, Robin was speaking about and the sense of pride, uh, I think, um, she, she evoked. Uh, as she was able to to participate electorally again. And I think that's, you know, really powerful story. That, that's all good and well, but, you know, for people who are convicted of serious crimes, the, the, the loss to the right of liberty, being jailed, is certainly more onerous than the loss of the right to vote. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that goes without saying and it's, it's undeniable. Um, but I, I still think, you know, in categories like Robin's, there are, there are reasons why, you know, certain crimes are committed. And these are reasons that don't always come through or come through enough in our criminal justice system. And sometimes people do commit crimes for reasons that society needs to understand and appreciate probably more than um, what we do giving them the right to express uh, some of these things electorally through uh, the right to vote, I don't think is a bad thing. Um, (laughs) I certainly don't think it's something that should be taken away. You know, we we do have certain restrictions there. So um, for for people serving sentences longer than three years or five years, um, they're taken off the electoral bill and they don't have the right to vote. Um, But I do think that excluding them in total um, is probably um, not something that, uh, not, not a pathway that we want to go down in our country. I think that's an interesting point, Mark, because there was an unsuccessful attempt to actually change prisoner voting rights to exclude all prisoners. It was passed by federal parliament, the Electoral and Referendum Amendment, I believe in 2006, and it said that anyone in prison when the election is writ which would, would be disqualified from voting. This was eventually, it was challenged by a prisoner, an Indigenous woman named Vicky Lee Roach, who found that these provisions violated the Australian constitution and were therefore invalid. And that's where we end up with this three years kind of number that we've ended up with at the moment. Now, the Australian Human Rights Commission actually does not support the view that prisoners should have their right to vote suspended during their period of imprisonment. And at the moment, there are some crimes that are actually highlighted. So treachery and treason, for example. Do we think it's different based on the crime? You've mentioned that a little bit. Is there 
really any crime that means somebody should have their right to vote taken away? Yeah, I think that's a really tricky question and not something that I probably will be able to provide a a sufficient answer for. Um, I think when you talk about treachery and treason, there are certain acts which probably go against Australian national interests and national security. Um, and that when you perpetrate those types of uh, acts or crimes, you know, getting you involved in the political process might also not be in uh, a country's national interests and certainly might jeopardise a nation's peace and security. So these are considerations that should be taken into account. But there are other crimes and, you know, the segment you've shown with Robin uh, tells us that there are certain crimes where their perpetrators probably have been in quite desperate situations that they have um, suffered a great deal. And these are crimes um, that they've committed as a last resort. Now, a crime is a crime, but we do need to take into account these circumstances. And we do need to think about ways of reintegrating uh, these people into our society to yeah, hold them to account, but give them opportunities to do right and participate meaningfully in uh, Australian society more broadly. And the right to vote, uh, I think, is is in that category. And something I've observed, Mark, is that, you know, one talks about the disengaged voter, maybe the voter who does the donkey vote, just puts one, two, three, four down the ballot paper. But prisoners, because of their circumstances, many are the most keenly and intently involved in observing public affairs. They don't have much to do apart from read newspapers, listen to the radio and watch the telly. Yeah, I, I guess that could be the case. Um, it's not to say that there won't be uh, donkey voters in that demographic as well. But I think, you know, we probably cast uh, people who've committed crimes. Um, we view them in a particular light, but uh, there's a whole range of people serving sentences. And by the same token, there, there will be an entirely different range of um, political views and people who take their politics quite seriously and would take their vote quite seriously uh, compared to those who won't. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to be any different from the broader uh, Australian public. So, Mark, you just mentioned public perception. I'm wondering if you think the stigma around imprisonment means that we're reluctant to change these rules around this three-year removal from the electoral roll. Yeah, I think that probably is a reflection of the severity of the crime that was committed. You know, the longer the sentence, um, the more serious the crime, thus probably the less we should be allowing uh, these people a right to participate in our political process. But it, I think, boils down to, you know, voting as an essential human right. Um, we don't agree that just because someone in Australian society has committed a crime that they no longer have or deserve their human rights. And I think, by the same token, just because someone has committed a crime does not mean that they should not be able to vote. I have one last question for you, Mark, just to play devil's advocate do you think it's time to revisit this legislation? Should we reinstate all prisoners' right to vote? I think it's definitely time to revisit the legislation, to hear from both uh, people who are affected, but also to have a much broader societal debate. Um, this is part of, I think, a mature democracy's responsibility to every now and then reflect on who uh, we're hearing from and who we're not hearing from, who's included and who's not included. On RN, we are with Mark Chu. It is God forbid. He's from the Australian Catholic University. Co-presenting today, Dr. Brianne Fallon. The rights of the disabled on election day, up next. Ensuring democracy is not simply about access to the ballot box. It's about ensuring that the action of voting itself is equal. The Australian Electoral Commission has made a number of improvements over the years to remove the obstacles disenfranchising the one in six Australians who live with a disability. Yet for some, the process remains compromised. For example, the right to cast a secret vote, the secret ballot, an Australian invention. It's guaranteed in the Australian Constitution, but people who are blind or who have vision impairment can be denied that privacy of a secret ballot when they're making their political choice. And it'll be the same on the 21st of May at the election. Yes, that's right, James. So 
Presently, people who are blind or have low vision receive assistance of an electoral official to fill out the ballot paper. They have no way of voting independently, even by phone. Remote electronic voting technology is a solution, but it's actually only available in New South Wales, and even so, the New South Wales Electoral Commission has decided not to use the technology in the 2023 state election. They're a bit worried about cybersecurity, and the last time they used it, the system actually crashed. Karen Knight is from Vision Australia. She has spent years campaigning for the introduction of a remote electronic voting technology to restore this constitutional right to a secret vote. She spoke to Fran Kelly before the 2016 federal election. The current options for the federal election are that you can register to vote and do so via telephone. So you need to talk to someone to give your vote and they cast it for you. Or you have the option of going to the polling booth and asking someone there to support you to cast your vote. So someone comes into the polling booth with you, basically? Yes. And how did you find that experience, Karen? Well, everyone is very professional in the way that they do it. For me, as an individual, it means that I can't be independent and it's not a secret vote. And that's something that every other Australian can do. So does that, has that annoyed you in the past? It annoys me a lot because I, I trust that they're doing the right thing, but I don't really know. So for me, it's a basic right that's enshrined in our constitution that I don't have. And it could be different, couldn't it? Because there is technology available to get around this. Absolutely, it could be different. We'd need some legislative change, but there is technology that's been used in New South Wales. There's the iVote system in New South Wales, which we think is the gold star approach. And with that system, you can vote online or you can vote using a telephone keypad. Or if you really find those two systems quite difficult, then you can speak to someone. But you can certainly cast an independent, secret and verifiable vote. So the telephone system would mean you just listen to the prompts and then you vote when your candidate comes up or something. Is that how That's it works? Right. That's right. And what about online? How does it work if you're vision impaired? Again, you, uh, you have screen readers or magnification on your computer, like you use your computer mm-hmm. for many things every other day, and in, you just select the options that you, that you want to vote for. But the exciting thing about it is it's not just for people who are blind or have low vision in New South Wales, because that would be extremely expensive, most likely, but they have opened it up to people with other disabilities, people that live t- more than 20 kilometres from a polling booth. And in the 2015 election, there was actually 284,000 people who voted that way. As, as you've told us, this iVote technology has been around for quite a few years now. Are you aware of the Australian Electoral Commission is looking into it? They have been looking into it. In fact, as far back as 2000, there were a number of overseas visits to see what was happening overseas, um, but we actually haven't been able to bring that to fruition at a federal level yet. And you know, we, there's a lot of conversation around about innovation, and this could be an innovation that would make a big difference to many people. That was Vision Australia's Karen Knight speaking there to Fran Kelly on RN Breakfast in 2016. So, Mark, hearing from Karen there, she's clearly very passionate about the secret ballot and I can sense she's feeling a little bit of discrimination there. I'm wondering, do you think, does the current voting system actually discriminate against people who are blind or have low vision? I think this is a a tricky one and I'm not sure that there's one clear answer. But, yeah, from what we heard in that story, I I do think there is a clear sense from some people with uh, low vision that they would like more independence. Um, She kind of reiterated the lack of independence in going to the polling booth. Now, over the last couple of years, because of COVID and because of lockdowns, we've experimented a lot with the way we do things um, politically. And, you know, most of us have had to cast um, a postal ballot in some way. So I think taking lessons from COVID, now is the time probably to start thinking about how we can make our voting system more accessible to use access technology, which is already available, that would give greater independence to cast a secret ballot. Mark, the secret ballot an Australian invention began in Victoria, 1856, and it's now you know ubiquitous across the democratic world. Why is it important to keep a vote secret for, for, if you, for no one to know what you're thinking except when it's anonymously opened and removed from the ballot box? 
I think this is quite important because it stops political coercion and interference. So if your vote uh, were public, in particular societies, you would feel very pressured to vote a particular way. If you ticked the wrong box and someone saw it, it could jeopardise you and your family. Having the right to vote privately means that you can actually cast a vote that reflects what you think without fear that there might be political ramifications. Um, And I think this is a key mechanism to to be truly reflective or representative of the population to let them speak truthfully. So if we're thinking about what it means to have a secret ballot, it's about safety, it's about security, it's about personal individual will – Do you think what the AEC is doing in terms of telephone voting with a a number and a pin so that somebody's vote remains secret is enough? Is that enough of a fair and equal representation of the right to vote for people who are blind or low vision? Yeah, I think the AEC probably could go further and have a range of uh, facilities available to vision-impaired uh, people and um, use the technology that we do have on election day to give uh, people in this category a better opportunity to cast a vote that would represent their own views without the need to have someone there with them. Now, I don't think all people who are vision impaired will necessarily mind, you know, an AC official being there with them. But it's about the capacity to exercise this right independently. And right now they're being denied that. So I do think it should be available to them. This is God Forbid on RN. I'm Brianne Fallon, co-presenting with James Carlton, and we are joined by Mark Chu. Up next, should we allow four-year-olds to vote? Four-year-olds? Yes, four-year-olds. Let's find out. Should we allow children to vote? Your answer may reveal assumptions you have about what democracy is, including who should be included and excluded. It comes down to what we see as the goal of a functioning democracy and the characteristics we should nurture in its citizens, young and old. I think it's important for us to look across the world when we're talking about this, James, because young people have been increasingly raising their voice politically. We look at issues such as climate change or Black Lives Matter. Even here in Australia, we saw the Environment Minister Susan Lay taken to the federal court by eight high school students, demanding a stop to the expansion of a coal mine in New South Wales on the basis that it would exacerbate climate change and cause serious harm to them in the future. Scott Stevens and Walid Ali from RN's The Minefield recently discussed arguments for and against giving children the vote. We'll hear from Scott in a second, but first, Walid says the engagement of children in societies really actually begins when they're five or six, when they go to school. But as they discuss, Cambridge professor David Runciman says even the right to vote should be given not just to five or six-year-olds, but even four-year-olds. Six is really the commencement of your educational life in a formal educational sense. So that's when you go off to primary school. And so there seems to be something of a meaningful convergence Hmm. if you tie the beginning of your civic life to the beginning of your educational life. And so six is a really good time to do that. I don't even remember why we balked at six at the time and we decided 12 was okay because having thought more about... Runciman's argument, there really is no reason to stop at 12. In fact, he, he makes an argument that the point of extending it to kids is not to extend it a little bit, but to extend it a lot. Yeah. But before we go into all that, I'm interested in... What, do you remember why we said we were interested in 12? We just couldn't quite imagine there being sufficient either grasp of issues There was some concern about the possibility of, say, very, very early primary school being essentially becoming campaign grounds. So, but you know what's interesting about that? There's a fascinating point that Runciman makes, which is that when politics and democratic politics is left to the business of adults, what you get is what we've got, which is people standing up grandstanding, screaming at each other, just showing how full-on the rough-and-tumble of politics actually is. And the debate 
is rarely enlightening in mm. that way, certainly in more popular forums. And then he posits this, I think, fantastic um, thought experiment, which is imagine the policy debate that would occur if a set of politicians, say, wanted to have this argument, but they were forced to be having it in front of six and seven-year-olds. What would the tone of that mm. debate be? How would they go about doing it? Would it be about body slamming their opponent into submission so that enough people stand up and go, yeah, that they're going to end up voting for that position? If suddenly we're having that for the benefit of a, a, a mediator or an arbitrator or someone who would rule on it who happened to be seven, we would probably conduct ourselves in a markedly different way. And I think what Runciman's saying is a far more productive way. Mm -hmm. So let's just think for a moment about some of the objections. So number one is denying the vote to children presumes that children are politically incompetent, that they don't have a necessary grasp of issues, that they're not able to weigh up, for instance, a variety of perspectives independent from the supervening uh, supervision of their parents. Another objection is that children are just going to do what their parents tell them to do. So in other words, this is simply effectively doubling, tripling, quadrupling the vote that's available to families of a particular persuasion. Now, just on that point, the first thing I want to say is, so what, my kids are going to do exactly what I tell them to do? Do you, do you think it's impossible, though, when you're talking about six-year-olds? Okay. So I understand they reach a point where everything you say is wrong. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but there is a point before that, however brief it might be, where everything you say is right. Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens, co-hosts of RN's The Minefield. There's a minefield question, giving four-year-olds the vote. They were speaking at the recent Womadelaide Festival. We'll put a link up to their full discussion on our website. Well, Mark Chu, Associate Professor of Politics, Waleed says children do what their parents tell them until a certain age and then they stop. You and I both have kids, so we know it's true, but surely a four-year-old voting is just absurd. Well, I think this is um, at the, I guess, the extreme end of the political debate on who we should be including in the electoral process. And extending um, the right to vote to four-year-olds is probably at the extreme of that. So it's certainly um, something that has been discussed by those like David Runciman um, from the University of Cambridge. But I think it's probably, from my take, on the more provocative side. Um, there is something to be said that as soon as kids, um, you know, enter the schooling system, um, that they are part of society and that they have a right to be heard. And I don't disagree with that, but I think probably a more productive discussion to be having at this stage is, should we be lowering the vote, say, to 16-year-olds? Every now and then, uh, democracies will um, entertain this question. So at the start of the 20th century, for instance, uh, the voting age in most democracies around the world was 21. Now, this was lowered to the age of 18 around the late 60s and uh, into the 70s. Uh, in Australia's case, 18-year-olds um, were given the vote for the first time in 1974, um, I think Gough Whitlam made the point, if you're old enough to die for your country in war, you're old enough to vote for the government that chooses to engage in that war. Correct. So um, I think it's a discussion that we should be having. And uh, we've heard in the last probably 20 years or so, um, both from academics and policymakers as well as politicians, uh, that we should now start thinking about the next step, including 16 and 17-year-olds in the debate, uh, giving them the formal right to vote. So we currently have 18. You've just thrown out the number 16. I mean, these are all just numbers. Why 16? Yeah, so I think it's kind of a growing recognition of the political aptitude of uh, teenagers. Now, uh, I think Scott in the, the piece talked about uh, political competence as a precursor to giving them the right to vote. 
when we look at the research, we see a lot of teenagers, younger teenagers now being very politically engaged. There's this perception in the public realm that uh, young people are quite politically apathetic. But when we look at it, they're actually participating in and living their politics in a diverse range of ways. And as part of that, I think we should be including them in the formal discussion. So um, extending them the right to vote, I think, uh, at the age of 16 is very important. Now, on the other hand, I think it's one of the quirks of modern Australian life that 16-year-olds can join the army, they can drive in some jurisdictions, and they can pay taxes, but they can't have a formal say in who represents them. And I think this is a really worrying thing. Mark Chu, would not the lowering of the voting age to 16 arguably result in a higher vote for parties of the left, a lower vote for parties of the centre-right, and this would necessarily influence the decision of legislators on whether or not to make the change. Yeah, I think you're spot on um, there. I think off the top of my head, the coalition has um, won four of the last six federal elections. Now, in all of these victories, um, roughly 60% of um, young voters have backed Labor on a two-party preferred basis. So that shows that on the whole young people tend to hold more politically progressive views. And when you said Labor wins 60% mm. of the young vote, two-party preferred, obviously a great deal of that comes from primary votes to the Greens, which then flow to Labor. Yeah. So, um, you know, even further left than, than Labor, which I would classify probably centrist or centre-left um, these days. That's been the main worry. So every time a politician has floated this, um, uh, so the last... Real effort was back in 2018 when Green Senator Jordan Steele-John, who is himself a very young um, senator, tried to introduce a bill to reduce the voting age to 16. That failed. Um, Bill Shorten, who was um, opposition leader at the time, uh, floated the idea in 2015. But every time politicians talk about this, those who are I guess, more conservative in their outlook, they understand that this will be giving the right to vote to probably about if we extended the right to vote to 16-year-olds, 16 and 17-year-olds in Australia, we'd be enfranchising about 800,000 young Australians, um, which could really reshape how politics is done and you know the, the issues that parties campaign on. So just to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, do you think they're reluctant to lower the vote, not because we distrust our young people, but because it's a political agenda? I think if we're to be serious, that's correct. Um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, what young people know and don't know, whether they will be influenced by their parents. But when we look at the data, there's there's certainly, you know, evidence to suggest that younger voters, first-time voters, know slightly less about politics and political parties than older voters, but it's not by much. The more damning evidence is that on the whole, the electorate is probably not all that politically savvy, um, not all that politically competent. So if we're saying that they, you know, the electorate has to meet a certain level of political knowledge and competence, then we probably should be disenfranchising a whole segment of the population. So we, I think we can throw that argument out. The other argument that they'll vote the same way that their parents do, I think that tends to be a trend for first-time voters regardless of their age. So, yeah, there's an increased risk if we say, you know, first-time voters at the age of 16, they will inevitably be influenced by their parents and their um, extended family. But if we extend the vote, the right to vote to 16 and 17-year-olds, we will be extending the right to vote to people who will largely still be in a school setting. And this gives the opportunity, I think a really exciting opportunity um, for schools to really dedicate greater time to uh, civics-based discussions, um, education in politics that could act as a primer and help uh, young people as they vote for the first time. So it would be part of discussions in school in the lead up to elections. What do the main parties stand for? What do the politicians stand for? 
And in this way, they would be given a unique crash course in Australian politics, which they won't necessarily have had um, if they vote for the first time um, at the age of 18 or 19. And, and Mark Chu, you support lowering the age of voting to 16. It's currently 18. It used to be 21 in this country. Aren't these ages all lines in the sand arbitrary? You say 16. What if I came back and said 16 and six months or 15 and three quarters? Yeah, I think the the ages are arbitrary in some ways, but um, that's how we, I guess, frame these discussions. We've got to draw a line in the sand somewhere. Uh, I don't think that's probably the important thing. The important thing is um, slowly having that discussion and saying, who else could we include? Um, We lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. I think a a good next step is to say, let's give the right to vote to 16-year-olds. Austria, Germany, Norway, Argentina, Brazil, they're all examples of um, electoral democracies that have successfully extended 16 and 17-year-olds the right to vote. Now, research has been done in the Austrian context. So Austria was the first European country to extend 16-year-olds the right to vote back in 2007. So research in that country has found that first-time voters at the age of 16 or 17 are much more likely to enrol to vote and participate in elections than first-time voters between the ages of 18 to 20. Um, obviously, their system is not uh, compulsory voting like ours. But the evidence suggests that the younger the first-time voter, the more likely they are to participate, to engage in politics. And this is a trend that sets them up for the rest of their life. Uh, I think we can take um, away from that that this would be a great thing for Australian society to have more people engaged in politics who care about politics and, you know, start taking an interest from an earlier age. I'm wondering, Mark, you just mentioned that in Austria there's a higher enrolment rate of 16 and 17-year-olds than, say, 18 and 19-year-olds, but it's not compulsory. So would you make it compulsory for 16 and 17-year-olds to vote or optional for them and then compulsory at 18? Yeah, so this was, I guess, the discussion that was had as part of uh, the last debate, which was the bill uh, introduced by Green Senator Jordan Steele-John in 2018, the Commonwealth Electoral Amendment Lowering the Voting Age and Increasing Voter Participation Bill. What he proposed as part of that bill was to extend the right to vote to 16 and 17-year-olds on a voluntary basis rather than a compulsory basis. And I think this um, was ultimately one of the key reasons why that bill didn't get up, um, aside from probably the more conservative uh, factions saying that, you know, we don't necessarily want to enfranchise um, 16 and 17-year-olds because that would take votes away from us. Um, But the the push to um, give first-time voters at the age of 16 and 17, a voluntary choice. I think personally, there's both positives and negatives, but it's certainly something that I supported the the bill. Um, I I provided evidence at the the hearing and the inquiry that was held. And I, I supported proceeding on a voluntary basis as a first step, because I think, you know, we want to Uh, encourage rather than penalise young people in all facets of life, not just um, when it comes to voting, because I think this ultimately will make them want to do it themselves. Um, And it's not just me, like a range of young people who um, turned up um, to give submissions uh, to that inquiry, I think they received close to 100, uh, many of which were from um, people under the age, age of 18. They were, by and large, really... Uh, for giving 16 and 17-year-olds the right to vote, but also um, as an initial step, doing it on a voluntary basis so that young people could have a go without any pressure and without any repercussions. Uh, I think that's the right step. On RN, it is God forbid Mark Chu has been answering questions with authority so far, but will it remain the case? We have Witsend the God forbid quiz coming up. I'm James Carlton with a co-presenter, I'm pleased to say, Dr Brianne Fallon. Wits End. 
Oh, yes, it's Wits and the God Forbid Quiz. There's only one contestant, so he doesn't even have a buzzer, does he, Brienne? He doesn't, but he still has tough questions to answer, and I know because you and I wrote them this week. And I might still lose. <laughs> All right, Mark. Which 1979 movie starring Graham Kennedy is set during the 1969 federal election? Jeez. <laughs> I don't know. Who won the 1969 federal election, Mark? Uh, I would say uh, Gough Whitlam. No, that was 72, Mark. <sighs> Mark, Whitlam scored a huge swing but didn't get across the line. The <laughs> movie's based around a big party where all the Labor supporters are gathering and they get increasingly drunk and pissed off that Gough didn't win. The movie Don's Party. Uh, <laughs> I'm already losing. <laughs> Question, which country was the first to give women the right to vote, all women. I think it was, was it New Zealand or Australia? Go with your first one. New Zealand. Yes, well done. It was our friends across the pond. It was New Zealand. (laughs) This is a bit of a tricky one. What is the only country in the world that has a voting age of 19 of all numbers? Uh, Yeah, I'm not too sure. You're still coming last. Yeah, well, I'm also coming first, so don't forget that. Yeah, that's... Uh, No, I don't know. Have a stab. Pick one. Let me give give you a clue. It borders perhaps the least democratic country on earth. Well, that could be a number of them, James. I don't know how useful that is. Yeah, right now it's it's not entirely... It could be Canada in that sense. Uh, Let me just say Azerbaijan. (laughs) South Korea. Oh, right. Next question. Which former PM has a brewing company named after him? Jesus, I know none of these questions. Well, that's not exactly a, you know, part of your discipline. No. As political professor <laughs> of politics. Um, it's, uh, it's Bob Hawke, Hawke's Brewing Company. Oh, right. A craft brewery actually in uh, Anthony Albanese's electorate in Marrickville, Sydney. One of the beers is named the Patio Pale, which was Bob Hawke's favourite place to have a beer, apparently. Well, I have never drunk that beer, but uh, I will go and look for it next time. While you're watching Don's party. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) All right. Multiple choice for the next one. Okay. According to the International Democracy Index, what's the status of the United States? Is it a full democracy, flawed democracy, hybrid regime or authoritarian? Uh, It is B, flawed. Yes. Wonderful. It is flawed. It's ranked 26th in the world. It's dropped down the list because of a lack of trust in political parties, elected officials and institutions as well. Yeah, there's yeah. The, the gerrymandering and the campaign financing, I expect, would be factors. For the record, Australia ranks ninth, is classified a full democracy. We're one spot below Taiwan. Taiwan more democratic, according to the index, than Australia. Norway comes first in the world as the most. New Zealand, the second most democratic country on earth. Uh, question, who was the only Australian Prime Minister to vote against himself in a leadership ballot, thereby removing himself from the lodge? Wow. <laughs> These are great questions. Uh, let me just have a guess and say Robert Menzies? And a few terms after. Sir John Gorton. Okay. The, see, he had this leadership ballot uh, with Billy McMahon. It was tied. And he goes, well, I don't want to be a leader of a party where it's, you know, it's just going to be hell if I keep going. So he used his casting vote to defeat himself. There you go. And with that, we have reached the end of Wits End and of God forbid, but Mark, you have won the quiz <laughs> and lost, so congratulations well and commiserations. Well, I'm, I'm quite happy with that result. I, I can't complain. Mark Chu is Associate Professor of Politics in the National School of Arts at the Australian Catholic University. I'm Brianne Fallon, Coordinator of Research and Educator at the Sydney Jewish Museum and co-presenter of God Forbid for today. A fine one you've been, and I look forward to having you back in the job next week. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app. You can email us at godforbid at abc.net.au. So on behalf of me and Brianne Fallon, until next week, we'll be back with a, a special on whether Australia should have a Bill of Rights. Remember, till then, be good. This has been God Forbid.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.